0: I will uh, do my best to be brief this evening, but I tried that this morning, (laughs) Uh, but uh, we'll see, we'll see. Um, We're going to go back to Mark chapter 1, just like I said. I did kind of wrestle in my mind about whether to go back to Mark chapter 1 or to go to the message I had originally prepared for this evening, uh, which comes out of the Minor Prophets, And I went went back and forth about it, Um, and I really think that God is sparing you from that message for a little bit longer, uh, because I was going to preach that message last month, and then at a last minute change of plan, and then I was going to preach it this month, and uh, now it's going to wait another month. And we'll see about next month, I don't know, but eventually we'll get back into the Minor Prophets uh, to a passage that has been... A sincere challenge to me and I've been thinking about for a long time. We're going to go back to Mark chapter 1. I think most of you are probably here this morning, but I'll kind of try to bring you back up to speed about where we're at in this chapter. We talked for quite a while about verse 1, which is Mark's description of who Jesus is and his gospel announcement of this new king who would change everything. And then we began to talk about the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was prophesied in the Old Testament that he would come and be the herald, the final prophet, to announce the coming of Messiah. And this final prophet, uh, his method of reaching people with the message of Messiah is almost here, was baptism, which is why we call him John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And John's baptism was different from believers' baptism. It was not a baptism unto Christ. It was a baptism uh, looking forward to the coming Messiah. And those followers of John who would become followers of Jesus would be baptized again in believers' baptism, uh, representing the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We talked about the fact that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. If you came to John to be baptized, the prerequisite for that baptism was you needed to acknowledge that you were a sinner, that your keeping of the law was not enough, and that you needed Messiah. Which sounds very close to the New Testament understanding of salvation. It's really uh, half of that whole picture of the New Testament salvation that is offered through repentance and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We talked at length this morning about the meaning of the word gospel. It's meaning in Greek, uh, Greco-Roman society. It's meaning in Jewish culture. We talked for at length about the meaning of the word Christ and the fact that Mark chooses to uh, ascribe this title to Jesus. Of course, Jesus uh, professed himself to be the Christ. And we're going to see in Mark's gospel that there are multiple people, including some you might not expect, who profess that Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is the Christ. We did talk also about that title, the Son of God, and the fact that when we talk about Jesus being the Son of God, we're identifying him as deity. He is very God himself. And we're going to see that again in this passage in just a moment. As we uh, talked about John, we got... Uh, just about through verse 5. So let's read those first five verses and refresh ourselves, and then we'll talk a little bit about verse 6 and its meaning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, "...the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord." Make his path straight. This proclamation, we'll pause just for a second. This proclamation of John, you probably understand it, but it's the proclamation of a herald who would come before a king and clear the street for the king's passing. You think about if, you, if you've ever seen the president's motorcade passing, maybe you're in Washington, D.C. or elsewhere where the president is, and you see you know, these police vehicles kind of leading the way with their lights on and they're clearing out the path so that the president can pass through to where he's going. This is John's message. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And what is the path of Jesus? Where is he headed? He's headed to Jerusalem. To the top of a hill. To hang on a tree for our sins. John is saying, prepare the way of the Lord. This is a little, little side note, but we're going to talk more about John's message in just a moment. Uh, verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Verse five, "And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I think we recognize this as uh, hyperbolic language. Okay? Not every single person in Jerusalem and Judea was going out and being baptized, but it certainly seemed that way. Many, many people were going out to be baptized by John. And we discussed this morning about how John's following was probably a much more popular thing to do, and certainly more people were a part of that than ever followed Jesus in his earthly ministry. Uh, They were willing to accept the herald, they just didn't accept the king. Which brings us to verse 6, which we'll talk about for just a moment. It says, And John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a girdle or a belt of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey. When you teach this passage to children, it's really fun to park here for a while. And I remember all the lessons that I had about John the Baptist as a kid really focused in on these things. He wore camel's hair, and he ate bugs, you know. And uh, all he ate was locusts and honey. Has anybody ever seen a grasshopper? Would you ever eat a grasshopper? And there's always a kid who's like, yeah, I would eat a grasshopper. It's like, no, don't eat grasshoppers. But that is what John did. Uh, so let's talk a little bit. Why does Mark take... In Mark's gospel is so brief, and there are so many details that he excludes on purpose. Why would he include these two kind of weird things about John? Actually, uh, the first one is fairly significant, and the second one uh, is also somewhat significant. So, his clothing, you know, we say, what is the significance of wearing camel's hair and a leather belt? Well, actually, John, by wearing these clothes, would have been self identifying as a prophet. And not just a prophet, he would have been self identifying as a prophet after the pattern of Elijah. And so we talked this morning about these prophecies in the Old Testament. They talk about the return of Elijah. But then when we see that manifested, it's John the Baptist who picks up Elijah's mantle, and he wears these things. If you go back and read the description of Elijah, you'll read the physical description we get of Elijah is that he was a hairy man. Okay? So we have this idea of a person wearing a hair shirt to represent that. And that he was known to wear a leather Belt, a leather girdle, would have been a very wide belt around his waist. This is like known that this is Elijah's garb. And so John uh, knows that he is sent of God. He knows that he's a prophet. So he's wearing the prophet's garb. And actually, we get a warning in the Old Testament, and we won't take the time to go there, but about beware a person who would come in hairy garment and a leather belt who would be a false prophet. Because apparently there were a lot of false prophets who would wear what we call Elijah's garb, and they would say that they were prophets, but they would bring a false prophecy, and the people would test them as prophets and find them to be false prophets and stone them to death. So this is a common thing, but it is significant. And Mark has pointed out, John knew that he was a messenger from God, and he knew that he was a prophet after the form of Elijah. And people will later in Mark ask John, are you Elijah? And he'll tell them, no. And then they ask Jesus, is that Elijah? And Jesus says, yes. And basically the the contradiction is, I don't know if John understood that he was fulfilling the prophecy uh, in the Old Testament about the return of Elijah. That's for free. So what about his diet? Why is he eating locusts and wild honey? Um, This actually would not have been uncommon. If you were a Jewish person who lived in the desert, just about the only uh, kosher food that you could have scavenged for sustenance in the desert would have been locusts and honey. So if you were in the desert and you had nothing, you had no money, you couldn't go into a local market and buy anything, you're a sojourner, you live out there, and you were Jewish, this is pretty much what you would have lived on. So what Mark is telling us when he tells us that John's diet was locusts and wild honey was that he wasn't a man of means. He certainly wasn't in it for the money. He was Humble. He was humble, and he was living uh, by God's provision day by day. Then in verse 7, we get another uh, indication of what it was that John was preaching to people in the wilderness. Uh, It says, And preached, saying, There cometh one, mightier than I, after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. John's mission was clear. He was the herald of the Messiah. Now, we know that John already knew Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist and Jesus are relatives, possibly cousins. There is discussion about what the word means that discusses the blood relation of Jesus to John the Baptist. But they were relatives in some way, and they knew each other from childhood. Their moms were friends. So... John the Baptist knows that Jesus is going to come on the scene, but he also knows that Jesus' public ministry hasn't started yet. So he's speaking in general terms that there is one, I'll introduce you to him in a little while, but there is one that cometh after me, and I am not worthy to untie his shoes. Which is actually a significant statement. Uh, Let me tell you something about uh, the olden days. Okay? People wore sandals basically, essentially, leather sandals was the footwear of the day and walking around in the dirt and in the streets and all that in the same paths where animals walked I won't draw any more of that picture but people's feet at the end of the day would have been gross and some of us are already grossed out by clean feet, okay? and so at the end of the day someone needed to take off the master's shoes if you were a person of importance who had servants Someone needed to take off the master's shoes and clean their feet. And we see this again later when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. We know the significance of that. But basically, in Jewish culture, and we have historical record of this, um, the, the job of having to take off the master's shoes was something that Jewish slaves were too noble to do. If you were a Jewish slave... You are too high in class, even being a slave, to be required to remove the master's shoes. In a a household of someone of importance who would have someone else take their shoes off, that would be left to the Gentile slaves in a Jewish household. It would be left to the lowest of the low, and amongst the Gentile slaves, it was probably the new guy, okay? New guy has to take off the shoes because it's gross, it is debasing, it is humbling. John says, the one who comes after me, I am not even worthy enough to take off his shoes. And you know what? John is absolutely right. Jesus would later say of John the Baptist that he was the greatest man born among women. Remember this statement? If the greatest man born among women is not worthy to take off the master's shoes, where does that leave us? We have a reminder here of the humility that we should have before Christ. We spent so much time this morning discussing the greatness of Christ, the fact that He is King, the fact that He is Messiah, the fact that He is the very Son of God, the divine Son of God. And what we should do when we see Christ so great and so high is what we call a high Christology. When we see Christ in this light, we should see what we are in comparison. If Christ truly is this much greater than I, I need to reverence Him. I need to obey Him. I need to heed Him. And the other thing that dwelling on the greatness of Christ in my own lowly estate should do for me is it should make me wonder at God's love for me. Who am I that Jesus should love me? We talk about biblical love. It's preferring the needs of someone else before yourself. Who am I that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, should prefer my needs before Himself? Who am I that this great King of glory should hang on a cross on my behalf. I don't even deserve to unlatch his shoes. It's a mystery. I wish I could explain to you why God loves me. I have no idea. Other than that, it's in his character. Other than that, he's good. It's awesome to dwell on the fact that this great Christ could love a lowly me. So this is John's message. He's saying the Messiah is coming. Repent. He's saying the one that comes after me is greater than me. I'm not worthy to unlatch his shoes. And then verse 8. He again indicates how much greater the work of Christ will be than the work of this prophet John. I indeed have baptized you with water but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. We won't, ta- we won't take the time to go into a theological discussion of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit means, but I will tell you that if you're saved, you have experienced this. You have experienced the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and God's very presence with you. This is something that Old Testament saints didn't get to experience. They didn't get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit God's presence dwelt among them in the temple or the tabernacle. God's presence dwells among us in our hearts. John is so excited. The best thing that Jesus is going to do for you is he is going to be God with us and his spirit is going to dwell in us. It is going to immerse us. We are going to be completely submerged in the presence of the spirit. Sadly for John, and he didn't know this, he did not get to experience that baptism of the Spirit because that wouldn't happen until after John's death. Of course, he got to experience the full presence of God in glory when he was martyred. John says, This baptism that I'm giving you is nothing compared to the spiritual baptism you'll experience in Christ. This is a blessing that we should never take for granted the fact that God is so close to those who are in Christ. And this statement reiterates just how much higher and just how much greater Jesus is than anyone or anything else, John included. Jesus is greater. This morning, this is about where we would have stopped, but since we have some time, I'd like to take a few moments to discuss the next couple of verses, which are connected thematically to the verses we've already covered, and it's a story you know. Verse 9 it says, it came to pass in those days, so we're still out in the wilderness, John is still baptizing people with the baptism of John, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway, which is a word Mark really loves, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened. I don't know that the word open here really does justice to the idea. The idea is that God tore open The heavens to reach into human history. Uh, The word that's used that means open means to tear open. It's almost, it's kind of a violent like interjection that God is reaching into human history right here. He saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. If you pay close attention through the entire narrative of Scripture, there are very, very few times that we see all three persons of the Trinity present and active at one time, where they're all discussed in the same situation, all involved in the same thing. Uh, We know that creation is one of those. Uh, We know transfiguration that was going on. But right here in the baptism of Jesus, we see all three persons of the Trinity. And I want to take a moment to see what each person of the Trinity is doing here at the baptism of Jesus. First of all, Jesus. Okay? And there should be a question in your mind. and Maybe you already have had this answered and that would be great. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? If this baptism, if John's baptism is a baptism of repentance and remission of sin, and Jesus is the sinless Son of God, Why should Jesus be baptized? And I will tell you that this is a much deeper theological discussion than you might expect. And there are a lot of reasons that people put out that we just really can't be sure about, but I'll tell you uh, the reasons that we are quite sure about. First of all, Jesus was baptized to associate himself with the sinful people who needed remission of sin. Not that he was sinful in himself, but a picture that Jesus would take the sin of all those coming down and confessing their sin on himself at the cross one day. It's very interesting if you take uh, verse 9, which discusses Jesus coming down from Nazareth and being baptized, and you compare it with um, verse uh, 5, which discusses all the people of Jerusalem coming down to be baptized. The sentence structure is almost identical, and we're seeing a parallel. All these people come down to be baptized for remission of sin, but Jesus comes, and he is symbolically going to stand in their place. So one reason Jesus was baptized that I feel very sure about, to to identify himself with the sinful people he would save. Secondly, we know that Jesus was baptized in obedience to the Father. This was God's will, and Jesus knew that. And we read in another gospel account that John the Baptist is like, naturally, I, don't, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, no, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. In essence, this is God's will. Go ahead and baptize me. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And finally, to give us an example, I feel very certain that Jesus came to be baptized to give us an example. Baptism can be a scary thing for people. To stand up in front of a bunch of people and associate as a Christian, and in some parts of the world, even coming out to be baptized could be dangerous. Because it's a public statement. I am now a Christian. But I would say, if Jesus, the King of glory, could humble himself to be baptized, you can too, okay? You can do it. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's obeying, he's identifying with the simple people in need of the Lord. What is the Spirit doing? The Spirit descends upon Jesus as a dove. Again, whole dissertations have been written on why a dove. We naturally associate, now that this has been written, we naturally associate the Holy Spirit with the dove. Why is the Holy Spirit a dove? And there are a lot of um, good guesses. Probably the best one is that uh, this is reminiscent of the Spirit moving upon the face of the water at creation. And it's, it's an identification of the Spirit as the one who is able to make a new creation in us. He's the creative part of the Trinity. He, he was there at the first creation, moving upon the face of the waters, kind of like a dove, and he's there to make a new creation in our hearts. He's the one who can make a difference. And uh, it's, it's, it's understood that the Holy Spirit here is empowering Christ to have the authority to baptize in the Spirit something that he does for each person who comes to him for salvation. So this is the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus, indicating to all of us that Jesus has the power not just to save, but to give the Spirit. Finally, we have God the Father. And this is probably the point of this whole discussion of Jesus' baptism, is what God the Father is doing. God the Father is speaking. He appears as a voice from heaven. And he says two things about Jesus. First of all, he says, this is my beloved son. So if you doubted, there has been an attack by critical scholars on the Christology of Mark. Basically, there are people who are like, Mark was the first gospel written, and Mark didn't really believe that Jesus was God. And they say, like, if you read... You know, he, he puts much less of an emphasis on the deity of Christ than any of the other gospel writers. And probably later gospel writers added this and it, became, it was kind of a myth that Jesus was a deity and, you know, whatever. Um, this is Satan's attack on the gospels. But the fact of the matter is that this is the third time from the third figure within the first chapter of Mark that we see that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. We'll come back to that idea in just a minute. He says, this is my beloved Son. This, this word, beloved Son, indicates that there's a special relationship that the Father has with Jesus that no one else can share with God. For, he says, this is my beloved Son. And then he says this, in whom I am well pleased. God was pleased with Christ because Christ submitted himself to the will of the Father. He was acting in obedience to the Father. He is our example in this way. Obedience to God is rarely easy, usually not our first choice, and almost always does not make sense to the world. But we must recognize, as the Son did to the Father, that God is our authority. He knows better than you. He sees the whole picture. And his plan for you is perfect. Better than you could have designed for yourself. Jesus would later famously pray a prayer that I hope we all pray. Not thy will, not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but thine be done. As I said before, we see Three different figures right here in the first 12 or 13 verses of Mark who have a high view of Christ. Mark had a high view of Jesus. He called Him the Christ. He called Him the Son of God. He referred to Him as the coming King who had a Gospel. John the Baptist had a high view of Jesus. The One who comes after Me, I am not worthy to unlatch His shoes. The Father... Has a high view of Jesus. This is my beloved, unique Son in whom I am well pleased. Do we practically in our own lives have a high view of Jesus? Does your life reflect a high Christology? Do we regard him as our King? Do we glorify Him as our Deliverer? Do we reverence Him as the Divine Son of God? In what area of your thinking, of your actions, of your words, is Christ not preeminent? When people look at your life, can they tell that you are under the rulership of this great King Jesus? Can they tell that your life is not your own? Or is, or is Jesus' kingship in your life, is his messiahship, is his greatness invisible? Because we don't really regard him as we should. In all things, as scripture says, he must increase and I must decrease. May there be more of Christ and less of me. Let's pray and then I'll turn it over and we'll head into our business meeting. Father, thank you again that we're able to reiterate to ourselves the greatness of Christ. The fact that he's the deliverer, the fact that he's the fulfillment of your promises to your people, the fact that he is our king, and the fact that he loves sinners like us in spite of our wickedness, in spite of our frailty, in spite of our weakness. Lord, we... We pray that you would do a work in our hearts that we would be able to live lives that reverence this Christ and treat him as as he should be treated, the Lord of all. pray this in Jesus' name, amen.